Section 14 of Castles in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Castles in the Air by Baroness Emushka Orksi. Chapter 7 An Oversensitive Heart. Part 1. No doubt, sir, that you have noticed during the course of our conversations that nature has endowed me with an oversensitive heart. I feel keenly, sir, very keenly. Blows dealt me by fate, or, as has been more often the case, by the cruel and treacherous hand of man, touch me on the raw. I suffer acutely. I am highly strung. I am one of those rare beings whom nature preordained for love and for happiness. I am an ideal family man. What? You did not know that I was married? Indeed, sir, I am. And though Madame Ratichon does not perhaps fulfill all my ideals of exquisite womanhood, nevertheless she has been an able and willing helpmate during these last years of comparative prosperity. Yes, you see me fairly prosperous now. My industry, my genius, if I may so express myself, found their reward at last. You will be the first to acknowledge, you, the confidant of my life's history, that that reward was fully deserved. I worked for it, toiled, and thought, and struggled, up to the last, and had fate been just rather than grudging, I should have attained that ideal which would have filled my cup of happiness to the brim. But anyway, the episode connected with my marriage did mark the close of my professional career, and is therefore worthy of record. Since that day, sir, a happy one for me, a blissful one for Madame Ratichon, I have been able thanks to the foresight of an all-wise providence, to gratify my bucolic tastes. I live now, sir, amidst my flowers, with my dog and my canary and Madame Ratichon, smiling with kindly indulgence on the struggles and the blunders of my younger colleagues, oft consulted by them in matters that require special tact and discretion. I sit and dream now beneath the shade of a vine-clad arbor of those glorious days of long ago, when kings and emperors placed the destiny of their inheritance in my hands, when autocrats and dictators came to me for assistance and advice, and the name of Hector Ratichon stood for everything that was most astute and most discreet. And if at times a gentle sigh of regret escapes my lips, Madame Ratichon, whose thinness is ever my despair, for I admire comeliness, sir, as being more womanly. Madame Ratichon, I say, comes to me with the gladsome news that dinner is served. And though she is not all that I could wish in the matter of the culinary arts, yet she can fry a cutlet passably, and one of her brothers is a wholesale wine merchant of excellent reputation. 
It was soon after my connection with that abominable Marquis de Firmin Latour that I first made the acquaintance of the present Madame Ratichon under somewhat peculiar circumstances. I remember it was on the first day of April, in the year 1817, that Monsieur Rocher, Fernand Rocher was his exact name, came to see me at my office in the Rue de Nau, and the date proved propitious, as you will presently see. How Monsieur Rocher came to know of my gifts and powers, I cannot tell you. He never would say. He had heard of me through a friend, was all that he vouchsafed to say. Theodore had shown him in. Ah, have I not mentioned the fact that I had forgiven Theodore his lies and his treachery, and taking him back to my bosom and to my board? My sensitive heart had again got the better of my prudence, and Theodore was installed once more in the antechamber of my apartments in the Rue de Nau and was as heretofore sharing with me all the good things that I could afford. So there he was on duty on that fateful first of April, which was destined to be the turning point of my destiny, and he showed Monsieur de Rocher in. At once I knew my man, the type, I mean, immaculately dressed, scented and befrilled, haughty of manner and nonchalant of speech. Monsieur Rocher had the word adventurer writ all over his well-groomed person. He was young, good-looking, his nails were beautifully polished, his pantaloons fitted him without a wrinkle, these were of a soft putty shade, his coat was bottle-green, and his hat of the latest modish shape, a perfect exquisite in fact. And he came to the point without much preamble. Monsieur eh, Ratichon, he said, I have heard of you through a friend who tells me that you are the most unscrupulous scoundrel he has ever come across. Sir, I began, rising from my seat in indignant protest at the coarse insult, but with an authoritative gesture he checked the flow of my indignation. No comedy, I pray you, sir, he said. We are not at the Theatre Moliere, but I presume in an office where business is transacted both briefly and with discretion. At your service, monsieur, I replied. Then listen, will you, he went on curtly, and pray do not interrupt. Only speak in answer to a question from me. I bowed my head in silence. Thus must the proud suffer when they happen to be sparsely endowed with riches. You have no doubt heard of Mademoiselle Goldberg, Monsieur Rocher continued after a moment's pause, the lovely daughter of the rich usurer in the Rue de Médecins. I had heard of Mademoiselle Goldberg. Her beauty and her father's wealth were reported to be fabulous. I indicated my knowledge of the beautiful lady by a mute inclination of the head. "'I love Mademoiselle Goldberg,' my client resumed, "'and I have reason for the belief that I am not altogether indifferent to her. Glances, you understand, from the eyes as expressive as those of the exquisite Jewess speak more eloquently than words.' He had forbidden me to speak. 
so I could only express concurrence in the sentiments which he expressed by a slight elevation of my left eyebrow. I am determined to win the affections of Mademoiselle Goldberg, Monsieur Rocher went on glibly, and equally I am determined to make her my wife. A very natural determination, I remarked involuntarily. My only trouble with regard to pressing my call is the fact that my lovely Leah is never allowed outside her father's house, save in his company or that of his sister, an old maid of dour mien and sour disposition, who acts the part of duenna with dog-like tenacity. Over and over again I have tried to approach the lady of my heart, only to be repelled or roughly rebuked for my insolence by her irascible old aunt. You are not the first lover, sir, I remarked dryly, who hath seen obstacles thus thrown in his way, and— One moment, Monsieur uh, Ratichon, he broke in sharply. I have not finished. I will not attempt to describe my feelings to you. I have been writhing, yes, writhing in face of those obstacles of which you speak so lightly, and for a long time I have been cudgelling my brains as to the possible means whereby I might approach my divinity unchecked. Then one day I bethought me of you. Of me, sir? I ejaculated, sorely puzzled. Why of me? None of my friends, he replied nonchalantly, would care to undertake so scrubby a task as I would assign to you. I pray you to be more explicit, I retorted with unimpaired dignity. Once more he paused. Obviously he was a born mountebank, and he calculated all his effects to a nicety. You, Monsieur Ratichon, he said curtly at last, will have to take the duenna off my hands. I was beginning to understand, so I let him prattle on the while my busy brain was already at work, evolving the means to render this man service, which in its turn I expected to be amply repaid. Thus I cannot repeat exactly all that he said, for I was only listening with half an ear. But the substance of it all was this. I was to pose as the friend of Monsieur Fernand Rocher, and engage the attention of Mademoiselle Goldberg, Sr., the while he paid his court to the lovely Leah. It was not a repellent task altogether, because Monsieur Rocher's suggestion opened a vista of pleasant parties at open-air cafés, with foaming tankards of beer on warm afternoons, the while the young people sipped syrups and fed on love. My newly found friend was pleased to admit that my personality and appearance would render my courtship of the elderly duenna a comparatively easy one. She would soon, he declared, fall a victim to my charms after which the question of remuneration came in, and over this we did not altogether agree. Ultimately I decided to accept an advance of two hundred francs and a new suit of clothes, which I at once declared was indispensable under the circumstances, seeing that in my well-worn coat 
I might have the appearance of a fortune hunter in the eyes of the suspicious old dame. Within my mind I envisaged the possibility of touching Monsieur Rocher for a further two hundred francs, if and when opportunity arose. The formal introduction took place on the boulevards one fine afternoon shortly after that Mademoiselle Léa was walking under the trees with her duenna when we, Monsieur Rocher, and I came face to face with them. My friend raised his hat, and I did likewise. Mademoiselle Léa blushed, and the ogre frowned. Sir, she was an ogre, bony and angular and hook-nosed with thin lips that closed with a snap, and cold grey eyes that sent a shiver down your spine. Rocher introduced me to her, and I made myself exceedingly agreeable to her, while my friend succeeded in exchanging two or three whispered words with his inamoratum. But we did not get very far that day. Mademoiselle Goldberg, senior, soon marched her lovely charge away. Ah, sir, she was lovely indeed, and in my heart I not only envied Rocher his good fortune, but I also felt how entirely unworthy he was of it. Nor did the beautiful Leah give me the impression of being quite so deeply struck with his charms as he would have had me believe. Indeed, it struck me during those few minutes that I stood dutifully talking to her duenna, that the fair young Jewess cast more than one approving glance in my direction. Be that as it may, the progress of our respective courtships, now that the ice was broken, took on a more decided turn. At first it only amounted to meetings on the boulevards and a cursory greeting, but soon Mademoiselle Goldberg, senior, delighted with my conversation, would deliberately turn to walk with me under the trees the while Fernand Rocher followed by the side of his adored. A week later the ladies accepted my friend's offer to sit under the awning of the Café Bourbon and to sip syrups, whilst we indulged in tankards of foaming blondes. Within a fortnight, sir, I may say it without boasting, I had Mademoiselle Goldberg, senior, in the hollow of my hand. On the boulevards, as soon as she caught sight of me, her dour face would be wreathed in smiles, a row of large yellow teeth would appear between her thin lips, and her cold grey eyes would soften with a glance of welcome, which more than ever sent a cold shudder down my spine. While we four were together, either promenading or sitting at open-air cafés in the cool of the evening, the old duenna had eyes and ears only for me, and if my friend Rocher did not get on with his own courtship as fast as he would have wished, the fault rested entirely with him, for he did not get on with his courtship, and that was a fact. The fair Leah was very sweet, very coy, greatly amused. I fancy at her aunt's obvious infatuation for me and not a little flattered at the handsome Monsieur Rocher's attention to herself. But there it all ended, and whenever I questioned Rocher on the subject, he flew into a temper and consigned all middle-aged Jewesses to perdition, and all the lovely and young ones to a comfortable kind of hardest to which he alone amongst the male sex would have access. 
from which I gathered that I was not wrong in my surmises that the fair Leah had been smitten by my personality and my appearance rather than by those of my friend, and that he was suffering the pangs of an insane jealousy. This, of course, he never would admit. All that he told me one day was that Leah, with the characteristic timidity of her race, refused to marry him unless she could obtain her father's consent to the union. Old Goldberg duly approached on the matter, flatly forbade his daughter to have anything further to do with that fortune-hunter, that parasite, that beggarly pick-thank. Such, sir, were but a few complimentary epithets which he hurled with great volubility at his daughter's absent suitor. It was from Mademoiselle Goldberg, Sr., that my friend and I had the details of that stormy interview between father and daughter, after which she declared that interviews between the lovers would necessarily become very difficult of arrangement. From which you will gather that the worthy soul, though she was as ugly as sin, was by this time on the side of the angels. Indeed, she was more than that. She professed herself willing to aid and abet them in every way she could. This Rocher confided to me, together with his assurance that he was determined to take his fate into his own hands, and, since the beautiful Leah would not come to him of her own accord, to carry her off by force. Ah, my dear sir, those were romantic days, you must remember days when men placed the possession of the woman they loved above every treasure, every consideration upon earth. Ah, romance! Romance, sir, was the breath of our nostrils, the blood in our veins. Imagine how readily we all fell in with my friend's plans. I, of course, was the moving spirit in it all. Mine was the genius which was destined to turn gilded romance into grim reality. Yes, grim, for you shall see. Mademoiselle Goldberg, Sr., who appropriately enough was named Sarah, gave us the clue how to proceed after which my genius worked. You must know that old Goldberg's house in the Rue de Médecins a large apartment-house in which he occupied a few rooms on the ground-floor behind his shop, backed on to a small uncultivated garden, which ended in a tall brick wall, the meeting-place of all the felines in the neighbourhood, and in which there was a small postern-gate, now disused. This gate gave on a narrow cul-de-sac, grandiloquently named Passage Corneille, which was flanked on the opposite side by the tall boundary wall of an adjacent convent. That cul-de-sac was marked out from the very first in my mind as our objective. Around and about it, as it were, did I build the edifice of my schemes, aided by the ever-willing Sarah. The old maid threw herself into the affair with zest, planning and contriving like a veritable strategist and I must admit that she was full of resource and invention. We were now in mid-May, and enjoying a spell of hot summer weather. This gave the inventive Sarah the excuse for using the back-garden as a place wherein to sit in the cool of the evening 
in the company of her niece. Ah, you see the whole thing now at a glance, do you not? The postern gate, the murky knight, the daring lover, the struggling maiden, the willing accomplices, the actors were all there, ready for the curtain to be rung up on the palpitating drama. Then it was that a brilliant idea came into my brain. It was born on the very day that I realized with indisputable certainty that the lovely Leah was not in reality in love with Rocher. He fatuously believed that she was ready to fall into his arms, that only maidenly timidity held her back, and that the moment she had been snatched from her father's house and found herself in the arms of her adoring lover, she would turn to him in the very fullness of love and confidence. But I knew better. I had caught a look now and again, an undefinable glance, which told me the whole pitiable tale. She did not love Rocher, and in the drama which we were preparing to enact the curtain would fall on his rapture and her unhappiness. Ah, sir, imagine what my feelings were when I realized this. This fair girl, against whom we were all conspiring like so many traitors, was still ignorant of the fatal brink on which she stood. She chatted and coquetted and smiled, little dreaming that in a very few days her happiness would be wrecked and she would be linked for life to a man whom she could never love. Rocher's idea, of course, was primarily to get hold of her fortune. I had already ascertained for him through the ever-willing Sarah that this fortune came from Leah's grandfather, who had left a sum of two hundred thousand francs on trust for her children, she to enjoy the income for her life. There certainly was a clause in the will whereby the girl would forfeit that fortune if she married without her father's consent, but according to Rocher's plan this could scarcely be withheld once she had been taken forcibly away from home held in durance and with the reputation hopelessly compromised. She could then pose as an injured victim, throw herself at her father's feet, and beg him to give that consent without which she would forever remain an outcast of society, a paria amongst her kind. A pretty piece of villainous combination, you will own. And I, sir, was to lend a hand in this abomination. Nay! I was to be the chief villain in the drama. It was I who even now was spending the hours of the night when I might have been dreaming sentimental dreams in oiling the lock of the postern gate which was to give us access into Papa Goldberg's garden. It was I who, under cover of darkness and guided by that old jade Sarah, was to sneak into that garden on the appointed night and forcibly seize the unsuspecting maiden, and carry her to the carriage which Rocher would have in readiness for her. You see what a coward he was. It was a criminal offence in those days, punishable with deportation to New Caledonia, to abduct a young lady from her parents' house, and Rocher left me the dirty work to do, in case the girl screamed and attracted the police. Now you will tell me if I was not justified in doing what I did, and I will abide by your judgment. 
I was to take all the risks, remember. New Caledonia, the police, the odium attached to so foul a deed. And do you know for what? For a paltry thousand francs, which, with much difficulty, I had induced Rocher, nay, forced him, to hand over to me in anticipation of what I was about to accomplish for his sake. Did this miserliness not characterize the man? Was it to such a scrubby knave that I, at risk of my life and my honor, would hand over that jewel amongst women, that pearl above price, a lady with a personal fortune amounting to two hundred thousand francs? No, sir, I would not. Then and there I vowed that I would not. Mine were to be all the risks. Then mine should be the reward. What Rocher meant to do, that I could too, and with far greater reason. The lovely Leah did at times frown on Fernand, but she invariably smiled on me. She would fall into my arms far more readily than into his, and Papa Goldberg would be equally forced to give his consent to her marriage with me, as with that self-seeking carpet-knight whom he abhorred. Needless to say, I kept my own counsel, and did not speak of my project even to Sarah. To all appearances I was to be the mere tool in this affair. The unfortunate cat, employed to snatch the roast chestnuts out of the fire for the gratification of a mealy-mouthed monkey. End of chapter 7, part 1, read by Lars Rolander.